Vox Pro, powered by TELUS International. Customer experience is the new competitive battleground, and to compete at the highest level, you've got to have an edge. I'm Patrick Hawhey, content editor at VoxPro, and we're all about beautiful customer experience. And this podcast is all about giving you that edge. Welcome to VoxPro Studios. How does a founder become a leader? At what point do you go from being somebody with a great idea to being the person tasked with leading a global team to turn that idea into reality? And how do you manage to do it really, really well? Now, this podcast series is generally all about figuring out world-class customer experience. But, you know, to look after people outside of your company, i.e. your customers, you first got to look after the people inside it. And that's where leadership comes in. So my guest on this episode has worked with some of the most iconic names in the world of technology and beyond. Brian Chesky of Airbnb being probably being the one that he's best known for at the moment, but his influence and his reach goes far and wide. That is, of course, Ren Vara, co-founder of SNP Communications. Ren Vara, Ren, you're very welcome to the show. Wonderful, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And now, the first question I have to ask you is always, SNP, can you please tell us what it stands for? Well, it's depending on who you talk to. If you, um, my general answer is it's snotty nose punks. Uh, okay. My yeah, uh, if that gives you some indication of my view, um, my wife and co-founder calls it um, uh, smart nice people. Very right? nice. Yes. Uh, there was a moment in our history when it stood for still no profit. Uh, (laughs) or or even sexually neurotic people so there's yeah yeah no actually what it stands for is it goes back to radio actually um for years we did a radio program out of new york city on sunday nights that was live and so when we created our company we called it sunday night productions because Uh it was it came from that initial experience of talking with leaders and um you know really getting to know what it takes to be a leader. So it came from that that initial experience. Okay. Well, I like the way it changes with the times and depending who you're talking to as well. I think that's a really interesting way to go about it, Ren. Ren. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you tell us some of the people, some of the people you're allowed to tell us that you have worked with, how, that mm-hmm. SNP has worked with in a leadership capacity? Well, um, I'd, I'd rather us not name names, if you don't mind. But of course. We, but let me give you some sense of us. We, we, we started our company in 1989 in Silicon Valley. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you think of all the companies that were founded from that point forward. So if you think in terms of, um, uh, you know, back in the day working with Oracle and Cisco, Sun Microsystems, we were that company that was deep with the leadership of those early tech companies, all the way up through the Googles, through the Facebook uh, into all of the startups you see today, to the Airbnbs, and now working with a lot of these amazing young founders uh, in cities like in London and Hamburg and Berlin, New York, San Francisco, all the way into Asia and to Hong Kong. We've had this privilege of being a part of this this unique founder community since 1989. Wow. And so it's allowed us to be in the rooms with some pretty amazing people. So the good news for our standpoint is I think I have learned so much more from these amazing founders than I've ever taught them. Um, and so I'm in the privileged position of being of an age where I'm still learning. I'm still challenged. I'm still, uh, uh, I'm still compelled to think bigger and better than what I think I know. Uh, and it comes from these amazing young founders. 
So I'm going to ask you in a couple of moments' time some of the things you've learned from these founders, but also what how you work with them. What do you what do you do for them? Because I'm sure they would tell a very different story from their perspective in terms of how much they're getting from you. But first. I want, I want you to wind back the clock. Take me back a little bit because I read a very interesting piece you wrote there a while ago and mm-hmm. it, you were basically saying how when you were young, everyone doomed you to failure because you grew up in a generation that told you to specialise and your business savvy aunt would tell you in high school, don't be a jack of all trades and a master of none, this kind of stuff. But That's you right. said you didn't listen. You focused on being a generalist, somebody of experience, diverse jobs and locations and looking back through your CV, that is, is so true. Tell us a bit about that. How did how did you know somebody who was doomed to failure by their family and 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 beyond uh, came to the position you're in now? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's one hell of a question, actually, Patrick. But what I would say is simply this: I have always been um, curious. Yeah. I've always been. Um, my philosophy in life was always: if I had two roads to take, one is easy and one is hard, take the hard one. Um, you learn more you gain more, uh, you surprise yourself more. So I think maybe the reason why that was true is I had two older brothers who were very much specialist and um, they, they were my guides, except when we came to this point. And I told them, I said, I just don't feel like that route is for me. What I'd rather do is live a life where I touch a lot of things. And then I'm going to hope that out of that we'll have some kind of economic you know, some kind of economic result will happen. And, and I would say this to you, Patrick, I, I cannot say it's because of skill. I can't say it's because of smarts. I can't say it's because of any of those things. It is luck. And I know people hate hearing that, but this idea that I worked so hard that I finally got lucky is incredibly true for me. Hmm. So my two older brothers are far smarter than I am. I would actually dare say that most of the people I meet in my days are far smarter than I am. Um, the one thing I think I have on most people is I'm pretty tenacious. I don't stop. I keep learning. Um, and it goes to that issue of grit, you know, this concept of grit, meaning that what's the, what's the commonality of grit and that's continuous learning. And that has been, um, I think that's been my, the, the one benefit I have in life is that I just keep learning. Is it the title of a great book? Is it Angela Duckworth who wrote it? Grit? That's right. That's fantastic her. book, and you're yeah. and you're so right, and and it also reminds me of the golfer whose name I can't remember who said that the harder I practice, the luckier I get. Exactly, or, you know. Um, so you said you 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 went through to through quite a, a diverse journey. What what are some of the, the career points that we may not expect? Am I right that politics was one of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Um, I uh, you know just to give you some sense of this. When I was around 15 years old, I wrote out a life plan. And the life plan had three distinct experiences. One was uh, some sort of government understanding. I wanted to jump into government. Uh, So I was a congressional aide on Capitol Hill at the end of Jimmy Carter's, his last term, and the entire first term of Ronald Reagan. So I was in Washington as a staffer in my early 20s, experiencing uh, all of that massive change. And I'd frankly say it was the beginning of what you're experiencing now in the world. I saw the beginnings of it, sitting inside of a congressional office, you know, interacting with people from the White House, from Capitol Hill, all those famous names, the Kennedys and all of that. I happened to be in the room. Now, I do think of myself as Forrest Gump, meaning that I was there, but I'm not sure I really understood what was going on. Okay? So, but that was my first experience. But after I did that for four years, almost five, I decided that I needed, the second experience was to understand poverty. 
that if I was going to understand politics, I need to understand the where it fails, right? So I went to work in New York City, lived in a tenement, and lived and worked with homeless children for almost five years. Wow. And then the third experience was to, I'm a Southern boy. I grew up in Southern Alabama, Northwest Florida. And I grew up always being told that if you're going to be a great politician, you need to know what it's like to hit a payroll. The concept being, you need to, if you can get to the point where you build a business and you actually pay people, that is the real testament of a human being, right? So my third experience was, I've got to build a business and hit a payroll. And that's what I've been doing with my wife for the last 25, 28 years. Um, so those were the three. So those three dimensions have been, those have been the pillars of my development. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I'm curious, did the person who gave you the advice to hit payroll, were they right? Um, they were right for me. I don't know if it's right for everyone. Uh, and understand that where I heard that from, uh, I heard that inside of uh, country feed stores. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's, uh, it's these stores where the big bags of feed for cattle yes. are piled up. I spent my childhood going into these stores and having these country boys sitting there with their, you know, smoking cigarettes and, you know, and they're sitting there going, well, this is what, you know, in life you need to hit a payroll. So that's kind of the depth of where that came from. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and, you know, you're talking there and, and the, the immediate picture I'm getting is that you must have come into contact with not just so many people, but so many types of people from so many different backgrounds with so many different motivations and outlooks on life in your time up to now. Yeah, yeah. I have been, I've been, I've been, I would say that's, uh, again, falls in the category of luck. I would say this, though, um, you know, like one of the things that struck me when I arrived in Washington, I came very idealistically as an American child, right? And, you know, the Americans, we grow up in this very idealistic view that, uh, at least during my era, where, you know, people went to Washington because they cared about people. Uh, you know, business people build great businesses because they care about people. I guess my first discovery at the age of 22 was all of that is not true. That there's a lot of people that are just selfish, power hungry, you know, not nice people. But what I decided to do is, okay, that may, that may be true, but I can either be tainted by that or I can really go out and search for the good people. Find them, be a part of their vision, be a part of their view of the world, and then keep reminding them, do the right thing. That ultimately for all great leaders, if you keep reminding them, what's the right thing to do? And so I have spent the last... 20, 25 years. And that's fundamentally the question that I, all the leaders that I work with, they would say that probably if they're on this, on this podcast, they would say, yeah, with Ren, he always somehow gets to that question because it's very easy to get caught up with complexity, right? It's very easy to get lawyers in the room and, and your, you know, your human resources people and your public relations people, and all of them see a very complex world. And what that does to great leaders is it can taint them. It can make them uh, maybe get too smart for their for their britches, right? And so what I try to do is walk in the room and say, look, all of this is true. There's a lot of complexity, no question, and I get it. But before we go there, can we first go to what's right? And so fundamentally, all the people I've had the privilege of meeting, the ones that, that clean everything out, they keep it simple, and they say, what's the right thing? And I do, by the way, make the difference between what is right and what is fair. I believe that even when you're dealing with fair, you should do, you should do the right thing first, even above fair, because fair sometimes becomes a reason to be doing not nice things for a lot of people, right? Versus doing what's right. And also say to people, to leaders, and do what's, what's hard. Sometimes doing what's right is incredibly hard. Do it. 
it's okay. Sometimes doing what's right requires hard work. It requires more money than you want to spend. It requires a lot of things that seem counterintuitive. Do it. In the end, it pays off for business. It pays off for leadership much more than all that other bullshit that people end up, you know, struggling with in a day's work. Yeah. And so when you say do do what's right, do you mean from a, a, what's right for the business? Do you mean what's right for the people who are working with you? Do you I'm mean what's right it, for yourself? I'm saying do what's right for the people, not for yourself. First not and for your foremost. Business, first and foremost. What is mm. right for that person? And, and what I found is if you do that, now you can't always do that because sometimes it's in such, it's so counter to the business that you really have to then, then it gets into complexity. But first assume, what if I did what was right for that person? What if I did that? Then you go backwards from there versus what most people do is they deal with all the complexities and then somewhere late in the game, somebody says, but you know, this isn't right for him. Is this, you know, this is not nice. And then by that point, it's sometimes too late because you've invested so much time and effort with lawyers and PR and HR and all that. Does it make sense? It makes perfect sense. And do you, like, so you've obviously worked with a lot of people in different types of scenarios. Is there any way you could gr- ground this with an, with an example? Is there any, you yeah, don't have to mention yeah. a name. <clears throat> no, actually I can't because it's a famous story from Airbnb. Um, okay. Back in the day, in the early days of Airbnb, when, when Brian, Joe and Nate, uh, their concept was very unproven. Matter of fact, it was even worse than that. Um, every time they'd walk into a room and talk about what they did, people would literally look at them and say, I hope you have a better idea. This is a really, <laughs> this is a very dumb idea, right? And what happened very early in their, in their history, at a very tenuous moment, a young woman, I think she was around 22, 23 years old, she went on the platform, she put her apartment up on the platform, and it was leased out to, it was given, you know, somebody, some guests came and stayed for an entire week who happened to be meth dealers, drug dealers. And they end up destroying her life. They stole all her personal information. They destroyed her, her credit her credit rating. They destroyed her even with the IRS. They destroyed, even physically destroyed her apartment, right? Yeah. Brian, when that happened, um, because they were so immature, that story did not come out. It took almost four days for it to come out. And this girl finally went public, right? And embarrassed Airbnb. And really what it did is it, it confirmed in everyone's mind that this idea is a really bad idea, right? So you can imagine what happened. By this point, they had investors of around $30 million. The investors want to protect their investment. So the investors got in the room with the three founders and said, look, you're not responsible. You're a platform. So don't, you know, don't do it. Just simply distance yourself from this young woman. Here's what happened. Late one Saturday night, this is the first conversation Brian and I ever had. This is where we bonded. Brian calls me up at home. It's 10 p.m. at night. He tells me this story. And as he's recounting what his lawyers are telling him and his HR people are telling him and his PR people, I'm getting really angry. And I say this to him. I say, Brian, I really need you to do this. You need to right now kick all those people out of the room, tell all those lawyers to get out of the room. By the way, I was using profanity. It was not Mm. a pretty phone call. And I said, I need you to do one thing. You need to get in your car. You drive to that young lady and you tell her you're going to put her total life together. And I mean it. And if that means Airbnb goes under, it goes under. And here's where Brian responded to me after I ranted at him for 15 minutes. His words were, I knew it. Yeah, and you confirmed it, what was inside in, in his what, what he knew. That's right. Yeah. He's a good person. And so he did exactly that. He went and put her life together. And here's what happened. People now say in the Airbnb history, that's what made it a great company. Very right? interesting. Yeah. Now, 
I was innocent. I just simply said, Brian, do what's right. And he did what was right for her. It ended up becoming the $31 billion valuation that you see on the business. I personally feel this. If you and I function in the way that we take care of people, if we serve others, if we, if we really do what's right, you know what? Everything's going to work out. And matter of fact, now, Airbnb is pretty profound, what, what happened. But I argue that for most of us, that is what will happen. The right thing will happen. And and you, so this this was the start of a very long and close relationship with Brian Chesky from Airbnb, as I gather. It's true, almost six years now, yeah. And with Brian and with the other leaders that you work with, do you become a sort of a person who who confirms what they think might be right, but they need to hear it? Are you a sounding board? Why? What's the motivation to work with you? It's it's all of that. Um, like for example, right now from Brian, uh, I would dare say for the last two years, I haven't helped Brian at all. Brian's, Brian, I've learned more from Brian in the last two years than I've ever taught him. Now, if he was on this call, he would probably argue with that, right? But I personally know that just in my conversation with Brian, I'm, I'm learning so much from this amazing CEO of a multi-billion dollar business about things that I, I will never know about because I've never sat on top of a multi-billion dollar business, right? So in his case, it's just maybe confirming for him or... Um, you know, maybe somewhat comforting. Maybe that's what that is. All the way to other companies where I'm working with a company in San Francisco now where the CEO um, is really struggling with this idea of being an independent contributor versus being a leader, right? Yes. So what I have to do is help him. It's not just about doing what's right. It's also functionally understanding that, that significant role difference that he's now, he cannot be just because he's a hero or because he can solve the problem doesn't mean he should. He should find ways of getting his team to be the hero, find a way for his team to be the one solving problems. And so in that way, it becomes a very much a skill building process, right? All the way to, you know, a number of people I work in London and Ireland and in Berlin, those founders are all dealing with things like how to work with their VCs. You know, um, if you, you have a London VC, maybe he's not quite like or she's not like what you have on the West Coast of the U.S. The West Coast of the U.S., they don't really care when they get a return, many of them, right? That's crazy. Versus in London, they're saying, I want to return in the next three months. So how do, I, how do you help them understand how to have a long view but also perform on a short-term basis? So it's, it's a wide range of things that, that actually I work with them on. I assume that a lot of the people you work with, they, they didn't start as leaders. They didn't just appear as a CEO of a company. They actually started with a product or an idea or a service or something that they thought they, you know, could change the world and the way people do things. Then suddenly they become leaders. Um, how hard, and, and I'm sure, that, and that's a difficult process that you help them with, but how hard is it when you become a leader not to lose sight of the thing you first started with? Um... You're know, really funny, Patrick. I don't find that to be as much of a, a big problem because actually the, the greater challenge is most of these people really so love their product that if they could have their wish, all they would do is build their product. Yeah. They, they wouldn't be in the leadership side. So actually the struggle more is to keep their head above it all. Like they have to, while they love doing that work, they have to realize that now as a CEO founder, you have to now get above that and you have to hand off that thing that you really love to someone else. And then find a way of helping and participating without interfering. And that I find to be the greater challenge than them losing sight of their product. Now, that said, there are some that as they get, um, you know, as you get big and money becomes a corruptor all by itself, right? So as you get big and all of a sudden you have money, 
um, that's probably the greater damage, not the leadership side. Uh, and so I do spend time with people getting their, you know, like, look, don't let this money taint your eyes. You know, the, pay attention to what you're doing here. Stay true to your mission. Stay true to your responsibility. Leadership is responsibility. As you bring all these people in to your vision and your mission, you better damn well be taking care of them. Because if you're not, that's a violation of a contract, right? So mm. money becomes much more of an issue versus the distraction of leadership. And I started the interview by sort of mentioning how this is obviously generally a customer experience. What is customer experience? What's world-class customer experience podcast series? Is it fair to say what I said that it's very hard to look after the people outside of your company, i.e. your customers, if you can't look after the people inside your company first? Right. I, I, it's, listen, we live in, a, in an age now where inside and outside are one thing. Yes, yeah. It, the, the fact that if how you treat your employees and, and their perception of you as a leader is actually become more important than what your customers think. Because here's the facts. That perception is now known by the world. And they know you better than you know yourself. Employees know their founders and their CEOs better than their founders and CEOs know themselves. So it suits, and I would actually, the burden is that you better damn well be taking care of your people. Because if you want to really destroy your customer base, screw up on that. A well-looked-after team member can be your biggest brand ambassador, really. Well, not just can be. They are. They like, are. Just think about what's happening with Glassdoor, with all of these, these um, this ability to get total transparency to what's happening inside of a company now. Um, I would argue for most companies, you better, you better if, you're, if you're having a struggle with this at all, do a real soul searching because it is one and the same. Your customer now is your employee. There is no difference now between the people working in the company and outside the company. They are the same person. Vox Pro, powering the customer operations of the world's leading technology companies. Have you ever worked with anybody, and again, obviously, no names here, who you couldn't bring around to that point of view, who, who the money did taint or who the power did taint and it, it sort of crumbled away from them as a result? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's been, a, there's been a few. I've had a couple of heartbreaks where... Um, um, there's one company, and it's a very well-known company, where I was working very closely with the um, with a leader who came up from the ranks. Like he had he had been a he had actually been a sales uh, engineer with salespeople to grow all the way up to becoming the leader of a major part of the business. Right. Um, in that process, I was a part of his life for like three or four years, getting him up there, and then the company has become incredibly wealthy. And therefore, he became very wealthy. And what, is, what ended up happening is, I, I call this, you might, if you've done some of the, the reading I write about, I write about this, this idea of the suits, you know, that all of a sudden the lawyers yeah. show up and all that. Well, the money people showed up. And basically what happened is he got bought into all of that stuff. And we had to part ways. I had to say bye to him because he just, we, he, he got so caught up with this glitz and the, so much of the money thing that we finally had to part ways. Um, yeah, it's happened a few times. I would say this, though. The vast majority of the time, that's not what happens. You know, good people are good people. They, they stay good people, even through, um, you know, the, the, the money, the fame, all of that. That goodness stays with the vast majority of them. Yeah, it's a lovely message and it's a lovely way to, to approach it. And it's like what, what Bill or what uh, uh, Warren Buffett says about investing. It's simple, but not always easy. That's right. That's right. Isn't that life, though? That's, that's true of life. 
Absolutely, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, okay, so look, I, I, you're giving me loads of time here, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. But because I don't always have someone who is such a com- an expert in communications um, and a specialist in communications on 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 the series, so I want to ask you a couple of questions that kind of relate to what we're talking about: technology. And I'm just interested in your view on this. Technology, is it affecting our ability as humans to communicate with with each other, particularly over the last few years? You know, I, I here's my problem. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, you know, I think back in the day, my first job out of college, <laughs> I show up in a congressional office and we didn't even have fax machines, right? Yeah. Uh, we were typing on selectric typewriters. Uh, all I had was a telephone and a selectric typewriter, and I'm having to respond to 500,000 constituents that existed in our district, right? Oh, wow. Um, when I look at what we have now, when I look at Slack, or when I look at uh, chat, you know, chat on my phone, when I look at email, when I look at even you and I doing FaceTime calls or any of this, I, I see it all as incredibly positive. The, the thing is, though, it takes management. It takes our ability to manage it so it doesn't become so distractive or so disconnects us from human beings that, that we end up being the one who fails. Technology's not failing us. We're yeah. failing technology, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's, it, you see, what, what gets me is that I, I think that sometimes I think we're losing the ability to verbalize what we're thinking or feeling because we can put a little emoji in there that says it. You know, there's a little face, there's a little picture that says everything we feel, but we don't have to say how we feel and we don't have to put it down in words because this little picture sums it up. Do you know what I mean? And, and that, that's what is, uh, often jumps out at me is that does that mean over time we're actually losing our ability to communicate our emotions, which is so central to us as human beings? Yeah. You know, I've never even thought about what you just said, but that's a really interesting point. But I would say, but who's failing who here? Yeah. Right? I mean, come on. Do you really, do you really, you're really going to let that get in the way of you being expressive? Oh, I would hope not. Well, exactly. I mean, come on, we're smart people. You know, let's, let's use our brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it could be a new service stream, Ren. Don't let the emoji get you down type uh, <laughs> a, a, a 10-week course. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm writing that one down. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll make that so. Please bring me on board because <laughs> I'm obviously passionate about it. Okay. Before we wrap up, I want to do a, a, a three, two, one, a bit of a rapid fire. Oh, here um, we go. A bit of a rapid here we fire go. question. Here you go. Are you ready yeah. for this, Ren? Are you ready? I th- uh, who, you know, who knows? Go for okay, it. let's just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> okay, three, two, one. It does that. What it does what it says in the tin. First thing I want to ask you: three things that you always carry with you. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm a I'm a writer by nature, so my notebook. I have a notebook that I have with me all the time. I write everything down. That's one. Number two, and this is going to sound odd, but my second one is: I never go anywhere without a packet of wet wipes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I found that I travel so much, those things save my life every time I land anywhere. So I'm really thankful for that. And then the third thing is, because I'm an addict to running, my running shoes are with me all the time. So what I do anytime I land in a market, I put those running shoes on and it gets me through jet lag and it allows me to get to know the, the, the area I'm living in. So those three things. Okay, excellent. Good start. You're, th- you're a third of the way through. Okay, okay so n- number two. <laughs> Two people we should all learn more about and why. Yeah, I, um, you mentioned one of them already, Warren Buffett. I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett. There's a documentary that's out about his life that I would heavily encourage people to, to um, 
to watch. There's so much more about this man that people just don't know about. But the, what, the lessons he could teach us today about money, about economics, about social responsibility are, are just – I would encourage everybody – Get to know Warren Buffett well beyond his investments. That is a human being. He is a model for all of us to live by. That's one. And that's because of money. It's because of social responsibility, particularly now when you look at what's happening in the U.S., what's happening with Brexit. I mean, this is a moment to pay attention. The second one is Fareed Zakaria. I'm a huge fan of Fareed. Um, and the more I watch his, his stuff that he has on CNN, but also what he has written about, he's got a new book coming out. Um, can he you gives who me, Fareed is for, for people who may not be familiar? Yeah, Fareed wrote the book. Um, oh, shoot. It, it's, he, wrote, he wrote a book about uh, the uh, America emerging in this new world, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and Fareed does a show on CNN, a news show. And he's got this really interesting worldview that allows, particularly an American, you know, living in my little, you know, the, I've, been, I've been misled to believe in the, in the American exceptionalism idea. So I kind of focus, you know, for he, he introduces me to the world. And um, I would encourage people to do that because it gives you this global sense of what's truly happening in every nook and cranny. And particularly for Americans, I think it's essential that we realize that we're a part of a world community, that we're not exceptional. We're just one of many, and we have something to contribute. And Fareed reminds me of that all the time. Excellent. Okay. Two-thirds of the way through. This is going very well. Um, and now for the one. The one thing you want to achieve before you retire? Well, the um, I, I'm caught between two things. You ready? Okay. I'll give you All two. Right. Okay. <laughs> you have um, to pick one at one, the end. <laughs> one is I just I feel a responsibility to my children to write a book. I just uh-huh. feel like I need to write a book. It doesn't have to be read by anybody, but I've got to write it for my two children. So – that's one. And then the second one is I would, I would love before I, I find myself off this little ball, I'd love to just spend some time truly living in an Asian country, That's like actually living there, living yeah. in it. Because I find that to be one of the most challenging places to be on the globe for my Western mind. Um, so that, it's one of those two things. Hopefully maybe re- I'll do both. You really do like a challenge, don't you? You like to. Uh, are you are, are you of the, the the mindset that when you're feeling uncomfortable, that means you're really learning? No question. Well, it's the, actually the opposite. I get really panicked when I'm feeling comfortable. Nah, interesting. Yeah, yeah you've I'm, got yourself like to that a, point. Well, I'm really bad. I'm not good at vacations, so I'm that I'm that guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ren Vara, co-founder of SNP Communications. It has been a genuine pleasure chatting with you. You as well, Patrick. Fantastic chat. And when you, when you finally write that book in Asia, will you come back on and we'll do another uh, podcast interview? We'll do it, Patrick. We'll do it for sure. Ren Vara, take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Vox Pro, powered by TELUS International. And for more insights from the masters of customer experience, you can subscribe to the VoxPro Studios podcast channel on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out VoxProGroup.com for all of our latest articles, ebooks, and CX thought leadership. For now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. VoxPro Studios, where insights live.